Welcome to First Importance, the official podcast of the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and encouraged today by this message. If you have your Bibles, would you join me in the Gospel of John? All right, this is your homework, chapter 15. Oh, my own music minister said chapter 16. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. John 15, 12 through 17. One of my favorite movies, one of my favorite Christmas movies, I should say, but it's one of my favorite movies too, is the 1946 classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Starring the iconic voice and personality of Jimmy Stewart. If you haven't seen this movie, you really ought to. It is a wonderful, wonderful movie. It is not a theological masterpiece, okay? It is not doctrinally without error. Uh, Every time a bell rings, an angel does not get their wings, okay? For those of you who have seen it, it is not a doctrinal theological masterpiece. It was not really intended to be. The movie follows the life of the small hometown boy, George Bailey, and his family striving to keep their business afloat, and they are far from rich when it comes to money. But one of the most prominent themes about this movie is the theme of friendship over finances. The main conflict of the movie occurs when George's forgetful uncle misplaces a large sum of money and it's stolen by the evil Mr. Potter. George is accused, of course, of embezzling and is threatened with a loss of everything. And then that's really when the movie breaks out into this a retrospect of his life and what it would have looked like had he never existed. At the very end of the movie, at the conclusion of the conflict, after it is all resolved, the Bailey house is filled on Christmas Eve with the entire community. And George's little brother toasts him and he says, to my big brother George, the richest man in town. Shortly after that, he'll George will pick up a little book from the fictional angelic character named Clarence. And inscribed on the front of that book is this letter, this note. Remember, no man is a failure who has friends. What a wonderful, wonderful movie. It's a, it's a feel-good movie. You, it, it's got everything that you would want in a movie. It's clean. It's wholesome. It's a very good movie to watch. I enjoy watching it. Uh, every year, multiple times a year. But that theme keeps hitting me in my heart as I look at our passage today. No man is a failure who has friends. Now, you don't need for me to give you an official study put on by these official groups to let you know just how much true and genuine friendship is lacking in our society today. We, we live in a society, social media has made it to where you may have hundreds or even thousands of Facebook friends, but you have no one who's really there when you need them. And by the way, all of your social media friends and followers 
all of them have really strong opinions about, and this is no exaggeration, everything. Everybody has a huge opinion on everything, and it's not a passive opinion. It's like it is a, well, I'm, I'm already going off the rails on this one. The point is you have all of these friends, but you really don't have close friends. That's even lacking in the church. Close, tight-knit friendships is a byproduct of what the gospel has done in our lives. That's what should be in the church. There shouldn't be enmity in the church. There shouldn't be strife or grudges within the church. It should be filled with godly friendship and love. We may have hundreds or even thousands of friends on social media, but we have few people on whom we can thoroughly rely Friendship is scarce, but there's good news for you today, my friends, as we see a friendship that will be offered to us. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12 and moving through verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we desperately need you today. You know already, Lord, my weaknesses and inabilities. Father, you know already I do not have that strength or ability to convey to your people your truth from your word. And so, Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would intercede now and speak to the hearts of your people, that you would anoint me for the preaching of your word, and that if there are any people who are here today or who hear the sound of my voice who do not know you as Savior and Lord, that today they would, they would repent and come to know you. And Father, that today all those who know you would come into a closer walk with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you may know that for the last year and a half we've been going through the gospel of John and right now we are really getting into this action we're into the last week the last hours of the life of Jesus Jesus knows that death is awaiting him around the next corner within the next few hours Jesus will die for the sins of the entire world and instead of his disciples comforting him. You've heard me say this every week. I want to reiterate it again and again and again. Instead of his disciples comforting him, he is comforting them. So much like our Jesus. So much to glory in and to gaze upon our Jesus in this moment of profound weakness and strength in this 
moment of grief and preparation for the cross, Jesus is still caring for those who are around him. He imparts these glorious words to his disciples, recorded by John, written for us, so that we may believe. Today we will examine the friendship that God has extended to us. And I would like for you to see now three aspects of that friendship recorded in verses 12 through 17. Number one, if you're taking points, if you're taking notes, my first point is I want you to see that we've been given a clear command. A clear command. Look with me in verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Friends, whereas the world speaks in grays and in-betweens, the Word of God speaks with clarity and in black and white. Jesus here gives us, His people, a very clear command. It is a command without caveat. It is a command without exception. A very clear command has been given to us here. A command that you and I ought to take to heart. A command that you and I ought to follow fervently. A command that you and I ought to obey with all of our hearts. Here is the command that you love one another. Now, what is the object of the love written about in our passage today? This is one of almost 60 one another's written in the scripture. But who is this command directed toward? To whom should we show this love? Now, Jesus has taught us throughout scripture that we should love our neighbors. Matthew chapter 22, verse 39. You remember the lawyer came up and asked Jesus who he should love? What is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment is the question. And Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your might. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus has taught us throughout Scripture that we are to love everyone. That we are to show love and compassion and kindness to everyone. It's very clear that as believers we are to follow that command. But that's not the direct context of the command written here today. We are to love everyone. The scripture also teaches us that we are to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 through, 40, 43 through 45 says... You've heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Throughout scripture, Jesus teaches us to love our neighbors. That is everyone around us. He teaches us to love our enemies which is a difficult thing. It's hard to love those who hate you. It's hard to bless those and love those who want to cause you harm. 
It's hard to love those with whom you may disagree profoundly on many very important issues in your life. But the scripture does command us that we are to love our enemies. But that's not what Jesus is saying and referencing specifically here. What is he saying? Jesus is teaching us here to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the specific reference here, that we as believers ought to love one another. He's speaking specifically to his disciples. Judas is gone. All that he is surrounded by now are those who are his faithful few, his disciples, and he is commanding them, church, love one another. It seems like the most simple of commands. But oftentimes it is the most difficult to pursue. Why? We get in the way. That person wronged me. That person had no right. The church ought to be filled with men and women, boys and girls, who love one another. Why? Not because it makes you feel good. Not because it's necessarily what you want to do. But why? Because the one who you call Savior and Lord has commanded it of you. You are to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus will say earlier in John chapter 13 and verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Guess what? You're sitting in the pew today is not necessarily in and of itself a testimony to the outside world that you follow Jesus. While there are many men and women sitting in this very room here today that may have made a public profession of faith, but have never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior in their heart and names, and their names are not written down in the Lamb's book of life, the greatest testimony is not just church attendance, even though we as God's people ought to be faithful in church attendance. The world will not know that we are his disciples by our political views. Although our political views should be influenced by scripture in our walk with Jesus. The world will not know that we are his disciples by our uh, just the way we interact on the roadway and the way that we interact at work, the whole world will know, Jesus says, the whole world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. So then tell me, church, if this is how the world is to see that we are different, why do bitterness and rivalries exist in the church? Why is it that within the church there's something that someone has done to you that is so grievous that you can't get over and obey the commandment that Jesus gave? He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. He also says in 1 John chapter 4 and verses 20 through 21, if we don't love one another, we have good reason to question whether or not we belong to him at all. One of the greatest signs in the life of a believer that you are born again is you are able to love those people who you knew before you got saved you would not have loved 
Amen. Hey, listen, there's some people in this room, some of you are thinking about them in your head. This person is a sign that I am born again because I love this person. And before Jesus, there's no way that that would have happened. If you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ, there's good question. There's good reason to question whether or not you belong to him. First John 4 verses 20 through 21 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is his commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we ought to love one another. The Bible also says that we owe it to one another. You know what you owe to every believer in here? with whom you may disagree, the person who may have offended you the most, you know what you owe them. Romans chapter 13, verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The object of our love is one another. We ought to love one another, but Jesus will now give us the extent and the example of this love. This is my commandment that you love one another, listen, as I have loved you. As I have loved you. It may have been just a difficult statement, a difficult command had it not included that last part. Love can be difficult, but Jesus here says, love one another in the same way and with the same excitement and with the same power that I have loved you. How has God loved us? That's a high mark. That's a tall order. His command is that we love one another in the same way that he has loved us. How has he loved us? Well, first of all, he's loved us willfully. He wasn't compelled to love us He wasn't forced to love us. Love is not forced. It's like uh, my two kids are in a stage where they love to disagree with one another. (laughs) That's the most diplomatic way I can say that. They love to disagree with one another. And so we'll make them apologize to one another when they have uh, big disagreements or fights. And then we'll say, all right, and I say, you're sorry. I'm sorry. Now, Belle, tell your brother that you love him. I love you. (laughs) Compelled, right? Forced. How would you feel if God's love for you were outwardly compelled? He's inwardly compelled to love you. He does love you. He has chosen to love you. But if you are compelled to love someone, if you are outwardly compelled to love someone, that's not really love. Our love must reflect Christ's love, which was willful. I'm going to love this person. I'm going to choose to love this person. You love them fully. How has Jesus loved us? He loved us when we were unlovable, while we were enemies. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. How does God love us? He loves us not only willfully, but he loves us fully. He knows everything about us. Friends, I take great joy in this. 
Some of, you, some of you know me well. Some of you don't know me as well as others. My wife knows me really, really well, and I thank God that she loves me because she knows me really well. I don't hardly get along with myself. I don't like me most of the time. But, you know, whenever I look to the God of the Scripture, I see someone who knows me. He knows everything about me, every thought every sin. He knows everything about me, and he still loves me. You've heard it said, well, you, have, you can love him, but that doesn't mean you have to like him. Would you like God to say that to you? You know, I really love you, but I don't really like you a whole lot. Well, then if you say that statement, the chances are you really don't love them as well, right? God loves you fully. He knows you and has provided his son to die for you and take your sins upon his shoulder so that you could be with him forever and ever in sweet fellowship first here on this earth and then when we die to go and be with him forever and ever in that place where there's no sickness or death or sin. Can't you? I can't wait to be through with this sin that so easily entangles us. Be there with sweet fellowship with him forever and ever. How does he love us? He loves us willfully. He loves us fully. How should you love one another? Fully. Without reservation. Sacrificially. Look at the extent and the example here in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus is able to make this statement with a straight face, knowing that this is precisely what he is about to do. He loves his friends so much. He loves you so much that he took the death that we deserved. He took the punishment that we deserved. Not necessarily just the cross, but the wrath of God that was laid upon him. He took that so that we could live. How should we love one another? Look at the example that he has set. We should love one another sacrificially. With no regard to our own well-being, we should love one another. With all that we have, we should love one another. And it's not just that we should be willing to die for one another. Although I hope that we would be willing to do so. But if you're willing to die for someone, that means you're willing to let your preferences die for that other person as well. I'm going to love you even though you may not be physically deserving of love in my life. Why? Jesus has commanded that I love you the way, not that you love me the way that he has loved us. A clear command here written for us. Secondly, I want you to see with me in verses 14 through 15, a comforting declaration. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. What a comforting declaration that we could be called friends of God. Now, Garth Brooks had friends in low places, but my friends 
we have a friend in the highest of places. How wonderful it is to say that we can call the king of the universe, the sovereign king of, of, of everything, the only holy one that we can call him friend. Now, we would be tempted to ask as the psalmist, who are we that you are mindful of us? Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You may well ask that question, who am I that God would love me and extend the hand of friendship to me. But friends, I want you to know he loves you and has extended that friendship to you. Before this, we've heard of random people in the scripture. Abraham was a friend of God. Moses was a friend of God. Our names now attached to that list because of what Jesus has accomplished for us, not because of what you and I have done for ourselves. Friends, because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. It's a friendship marked by obedience. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do as I command you. We all have parameters uh, on what qualifies friendship. We all have uh, rules, uh, maybe not written down. They're set up in our heart. I'm willing to share so much with someone because I consider them to be a friend who will keep my confidence, who will keep what I've told them secret, who will pray for me and who will not judge me. We all have parameters on who we will allow to be our best friends and who we will not allow to be our friends. Here Jesus says, I extend to you this friendship, but you should know this of my friends. My friends... Do as I command. It's something he's emphatically stated over all of his ministry, especially over the last two chapters. Chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. 14, chapter 14, and verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. What about chapter 14 and verses 23 through 24? If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Friends, I want you to understand this friendship with God has this qualifier. If we are friends of God, we are those who obey his commandments. Now, do we mess up? You better believe it. Excuse me. I don't want to use the word mess up. Do we sin? You better believe it. You better believe it. Do we fall into sin? Yes. Do we run headlong into sin sometimes? Yes. But the believer is also marked not only by his love for one another, but his love for God, which, which pushes him or her to obey the commandments of God. And those commandments are not burdensome to us because we love Jesus. It's a friendship marked by obedience. Jesus says, you are my friends if, conditional, if you do what I command you. That's 
By the way, that's the problem with most of society today. People who refuse to call upon the name of Jesus, it's an issue of authority. And they would say, who is he to make such a command? What they're really saying is, why am I not the one to make the command? Should I not be the one in authority? Should I not have the sovereignty over my life and have my desire over everyone else's? But friends, I want you to know you do not deserve that and you do not possess that. There is one who does possess that. There is one who is the sovereign king and he is worthy of your service. He is worthy of your worship. Friendship is marked by obedience. Secondly, friendship is marked by openness. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. He says, you know, a servant doesn't know all that a master is doing. He'll tell the the worker to do a certain job. You must accomplish this job. You must do this. And the worker has doesn't have to know anything else about it. What's the bigger plan here? What's the aim? It's like being in the military and being told to go do something. The the private doesn't say to the to the colonel, "Okay, what's the bigger thing you have in mind here?" Right? If he does that, he'll be doing push-ups for a very 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 long time. A servant doesn't typically know what the master is doing, but not now. We are not just servants. We are friends of Jesus. No longer is the Father hidden from us, but he's perfectly revealed to us in his son Jesus. His grand plan for salvation is no longer shadow, but it's substance in Jesus. You know, Jesus, to look at him is to see the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. When we see Jesus, those questions go away. And we, when we set our eyes upon him, we see the salvation that God has provided for us. Remember just earlier in chapter 14, Thomas is asking Jesus a question that's similar to this. Thomas says to Jesus, Jesus, just show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you this long and you don't know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, we no longer walk in darkness. But now that the Messiah has come, he has revealed these things to us and how we may be saved. We may not understand everything clearly, but we know who's on the throne and who's working out everything for his glory and our good. I heard the story once of a gentleman who was a godly man, he was in a, he was flying a plane with his family and one of the engines went out in the plane and he crashed into a forest and all of those members of his family passed away. He had no uh, real ability to be able to move as his legs were broken and several other things were broken. And he crawled as, after he tried to attend to his family, he crawled to try to find a place where he could survive. And after after several days, uh, he was found and he was taken to a hospital. And there he started to receive treatment and endure the loss of all that he had just lost. And some friends from his church came over and began to talk to him. And one of the church members asked, Don't you ever ask why? And he said, I don't have to ask why. 
I know who. I know God's on his throne. And while I'm in this pain, I don't have to ask why, because I know who. We may not understand everything, but here's what we do know. Somehow, God's working out this chaos below for something good. Our friendship is one that is, has a clear command, has a comforting declaration. And finally, I want you to see with me in verses 16 through 17, I want you to see that we have a calculated calling. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Friends, you were chosen by God. If you are here today and you've repented of your sins, if you called upon the name of Jesus, you have great, uh, you have something wonderful to rejoice in that you have been called by God, that you've been chosen. Now, a lot of people get all bent out of shape when we begin to talk about these things. They want to be on the throne. They want to say, no, I made the choice. Well, what does Jesus say here in this verse? Now, if you're going to go against what Jesus says, you better go find some good scripture to back it up with. What does Jesus say? You did not choose me. I chose you. You weren't desirable. You couldn't, we could not have chosen him, by the way, if we wanted to. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had we wanted nothing to do with him. We were enemies of his. But when the Holy Spirit began to weigh upon my heart and began to show me that Jesus loves me and died for me that he has chosen me, then yes, of course, in turn, there's this re-choosing of him. But Jesus is saying here, I chose you first. I loved you first. You get bent out of shape on that. But when you, when you realize who you really are and what you really bring to the table, you're glad that he chose you. It's like, it's like going back to first grade or second grade. All those years we go out to play baseball. I was not talented at all in baseball. I'm, honestly, I'm not talented at any sport now that I think about it. I don't know actually where I have talents, but that's a whole other conversation. We would go out to pick teams. You know, all the guys would get together and they'd pick two team captains and all the time, you know, and you kind of grew used to it. All the time you would see every kid getting picked and go, that last one, <laughs> I'm sorry, that last one was I got Josh. <laughs> There's always a sigh before Josh got picked. Okay? They're going to put me up to bat when the pitcher is really worn out, and hopefully he just can't get it right down the plate. See, I had nothing to offer. But when you're chosen and you realize you have nothing to offer, well, then that's something special, isn't it? You and I had nothing to offer. We were his enemies, and he chose us. And today, there may be some of you here who are hearing my words, and you're hearing of what Jesus has done for you, how he has offered to take away your sins and to give you eternal life. You've heard this, and right now you feel that calling in your life, the Holy Spirit touching your heart, speaking you to repent of your sins and to call upon him. That is his calling out to you. To turn from yourself and from your sins and to come to him. He has chosen you. If, you have, if you've lost all joy in life, believer, take great joy that you did not choose him, but he chose you.
1 John 4, 9 through 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us first. Finally, underneath this calculated calling, I want you to see that not only were you chosen by God, but you were chosen with purpose. You were not chosen to sit in a pew. But I'm glad that you're here. I want you to sit in a pew or whatever seat we have here. I want you to be here. I want you to be comfortable. I want you to, to be present every Sunday as we study God's Word and sing these songs of worship together. I want you to be here. But you were not saved to just sit in a pew. You were saved to serve. You were saved for a purpose. Now, what does Jesus say here about that? I chose you and appointed you in verse 16 that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. That it would be lasting. That you would be fruitful. So that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. You have been chosen for a purpose. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has before prepared that we should walk in them. You and I were saved to serve. And if sitting on a pew is your idea of service, my friends, I'm glad that you're here. But that's not what we do as a church. That's not exclusively what we do as a church. We were saved to serve, to serve one another, to go out to our community, to serve them and share the gospel with them. That's why we have go nights. That's why we've got that started back up because we want them to see that there are legs, there are feet, there are hands to the call and the heart of Jesus. We are to serve one another. We are to serve our community so that they can hear the gospel. And Jesus says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, people use that as a blanket statement. Just ask God for anything and he'll give it to you. But read that next statement. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, why does he put that statement of whatever you ask the Father, he will give to you into this passage? Because loving one another can be very difficult. You don't need your love. You need his love. You need his love to work through you towards those whom you cannot love. Ask it from the Father. Today, are there bitterness and rivalries in your life? Are there areas where you've not forgiven people? Are there areas where there is envy and strife? My friends, today, let go of that and ask God for forgiveness and allow his love to flow to that person who has hurt you. Allow his love to be extended out toward those people. If we are friends of God, we obey him. If we are friends of God, we know that we have this calculated calling. We've been chosen by him and we've been chosen with purpose. Thank you for listening to First Importance. It is our prayer that you have been blessed by this podcast. We welcome you to join us in person for worship at First Baptist West Memphis on Sundays at 1045 a.m., where our desire is to love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.